as we continue to worship our awesome God, let us do that by opening up in prayer. Father God, we just thank you so much for who you are, for what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ, that allows us to even come together to worship you in this way. Uh, Lord, we just thank you so much. And we pray for all the other gospel-preaching churches here in London that are proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, our sister churches here with the fellowship. But Lord, uh, specifically this week, we think of redemption. And Lord, we thank you for them and their ongoing ministry as they seek to be faithful disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would bless them, that you give Pastor Norm the words that he needs as he preaches your word to that church. We pray for the elders there as well, that they would shepherd the flock well and for your glory. But Lord, as we continue to worship you together, as we open up our Bibles, Lord, we pray that you are indeed are glorified. And God, I can't do this on my own. So Lord, I pray that by your spirit that you would make this turn out well. I pray that you would use this sermon for your glory, to call people to yourself, to renew your people here, and for the glory of your name, and amen. As you uh, open your Bibles to John chapter 13, as we continue to worship our awesome God, as we continue in our sermon series looking at John, and we're going to be looking at that one passage that seems so familiar to us all, the foot washer, in John chapter 13, verses 1 to 20. And let me ask you this question. How do you know that someone loves you? How do you know? You know, not too long ago, there was that thing called uh, the five love languages, which I think everybody goes on these days. But uh, how do you know that? I like gifts. I like presents. I got uh, a package of Twizzlers today, and I think that's going to make me happy for a while. But how do you know that someone loves you? How do you know that a group of people love each other? How do you know these things? Is it a feeling? Is it something that you see? Is it something that you're experiencing? How do you know these things? And in John chapter 13, we see Jesus doing an example for you and for me. It's an example of how we are to love one another, how we are to care for one another, how we are to serve one another as a church. And Jesus gives us that standard by which you which we are called to love and to serve one another. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to John chapter 13. I'm going to be reading from verses 1 to 20 as we look at Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put into the hearts of Judas Iscariot, Simeon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What am I doing you do not understand now? But afterwards you will understand. 
And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, If I do not wash your feet, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to be washed except for his feet, but it's completely clean. But it's completely clean. And you are clean but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If, you, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture that but the, the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate at my bread my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever receives the one I sent receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And this is the word of the Lord. In verses 1 to 11, we see this simple thing that Jesus washes the disciples' feet. If you grew up in the church like I did, you've heard this story I don't know how many times. Uh, now it's like the trend to do it in weddings. You get together and, you know, the, the, the groom washes his bride's feet. I love my wife, but it's not happening. But that's one of the things. We hear about this all the time. But in verse 1, it says this. Now, before the feast was over, before that Passover time was there, that time when, they took, when the Jews took time to remember how God had been faithful in the past, which also reminds us, as we look to the future, of those promises that have not yet come to fruition. But as the Jewish and the, Jesus and the disciples gathered together to take part in this Passover meeting, marking the time when, when, Jesus, when, when God passed over, the angel of the Lord passed over the Israelites as they were in slavery in, in, in Egypt, and God provided in that way. Jesus comes and he takes this time to show them something that's powerful, that's shown in the end of verse 1. Having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's a powerful verse. Having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Love this. I love this so much. And it's a picture of looking back and looking forward. This is the key statement. This is the key point that John is trying to make and explains everything that Jesus is about to do that comes here. This shows Jesus' particular love for his own. Jesus, Jesus didn't just love his own, though. He did love the whole world. But there is a difference between the love Jesus has for the world and for those who are his. Now imagine I was showing the same sort of love I had for my wife that I did and sharing that same love with everybody else. That's a little weird, don't you think? 
It's a difference in a man's love for his bride compared to his love for others that we're talking about here. God has done some things for all men, but on the other hand, God has done all things for some men. It's a, it is Christ's all-saving love for those who are his that this chapter is talking about. So how that love is shown is what Jesus is about to do. But here's a question that comes out is how do you become his own? In John 15, 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. See, Jesus makes those who are his, his, by choosing them out of his gracious love. Jesus made us his own by purchasing, by redeeming us from our sins through the blood of the cross. That's why 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 to 20 is so powerful. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. We are Christ's own because we are we're born again as children of God through the Holy Spirit. And what this does for those who are in Christ is that we have taken Christ for our own and given ourselves to him. So that for those who are in Christ, this life doesn't have any sort of glitter except to be called Christ's own. There's a long-time dead preacher named Charles Spurgeon who put it this way. The fact that you are truly Christ is the fountain of innumerable pleasures and blessings to your heart. Jesus calls us his own, his own sheep, his own disciples, his own friends, his own brethren, the members of his body. What title for us to wear? His own those who distinguish us from the rest of mankind and sets us apart unto himself. My name shall be named on them, says he. Surely this is the highest honor that can be put upon us even in the last great day. You ever thought about that? When Jesus comes and he says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Where's your hope set on? Jesus loved these disciples to the end. That is, to the completion of his work as the last Adam. To the end, that God will be glorified in the redemption of ill-deserving sinners like you and like me. To the end, to the fullest extent, he did this for his own. And this is why we gather to praise him. No one loves us like Jesus. No one. And nothing will ever separate us from his love, as Romans 8 says. And his compelling love propels us into faithful service, as 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14 says. For the love of Christ controls us, he says. Have you ever sit back and kind of dwell upon what that means? What does it mean to be counted as his own? That in Christ, the creator of the universe loves you until the end. This is the context of what Jesus is about to do as he 
sets apart his clothing, his outer garments, and he puts it to the side, and then he picks up a towel. He, he wraps it around his waist, and he fills a basin with water, and he begins to go slowly to each of his disciples and start washing their feet. In the historical context, the person who would wash the feet is usually the lowest on the totem pole in the home. It could be a slave, it could have been somebody else, probably the youngest child, if they didn't have a slave. But it was the lowest, it was the least wanted job. Yet here Jesus is, (laughs) the creator of the universe. He takes his outer clothing off, he wraps a towel around himself, takes a basin of water, and slowly washes the feet of each of his disciples. It's funny, because half the time we think that we're too high to do something that's too low. And here our Lord and Savior, the one who spoke into existence everything, is going around washing feet. But in verse 2, an interesting thing comes out. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simeon's son, to betray him. And we'll get into this later, but Jesus washed Judas's feet, the one whom would betray him for some trinkets of gold or of silver. But John magnifies the goodness of Jesus by contrasting him with Judas. This puts the beauty of Jesus in relief against the ugliness of evil. And it also helps us understand that one phrase, the devil made me do it. Well, that's the same argument that Adam and Eve tried too. But James 1.14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desires. So why do we sin? Why did Judas do what he did? We sin because we are sinners. We are plagued by, the, we are plagued by and affected by sin. While demonic oppression and influence are real, I'm not going to come along and say, oh, there's no such thing as oppression and demonic powers. What we need to see is that the primary problem is our sinful nature. Galatians 5 talks about this. He comes along and he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, and sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissension, division, eat, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. But you notice that at the beginning of that it says it's the works of the flesh that begin the list, not the works of the devil. If you are a Christian you are, and you are com- committing sin, the devil did not make you do it. He may have tempted you to do it. He may have influenced you to do it, but he did not make you do it. It's not like he came up to you and kind of like, you know, if you're wrestling with your siblings and they kind of twist your arm behind your back and they can force you to do and go wherever you want. It's not what the devil's doing. He might be whispering in your ear. He whispered in Judas's ear. But remember this, that God never allows you to be tempted beyond your ability to withstand and he always provides a way to escape, as 1 Corinthians 10 says. A Christian saying that the devil made me do it 
is denying the truth of even what John says in 1 John 4, 4, which says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, he says. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's a powerful one right there. This week, I was on my way to have lunch with some people, and uh, I, went, I went to Subway to get my, uh, my, my sandwich, because my, you can count the calories and stuff. It's uh, better than Wendy's, that's for sure. And as I'm standing there in line, I could feel on my heart this need to talk to the individual who is making my sandwich. And if you know me at all, I'm a fairly shy guy to begin with. So I'm already walking into this subway thinking I don't want to talk to anyone. That's exactly how I was thinking. But I kept having this nagging feeling. So for me, I have like set pre-prepared questions that I can ask so that I can spark up a conversation because I'm really bad at this stuff. So I go there, and I walk in there, and I see this young lady come out, and I, and I go through all my questions in my head. I'm like, that's not going to work, that's not going to work, that's not going to work. And I think, okay, this one's going to work. Slow morning today? And she just breaks down and starts crying. It's just me and her in the store, so I'm going, what in the world happened here? I don't understand what's happening. And she starts talking to me about how she feels like she's under attack. And I go, well, what do you mean by attack? What does that look like? She's like, well, I just feel oppressed. Like someone's like covering my mouth and stuff like this. And, you know, and, and, and I've been trying to get my life right with God. And I've been trying to get myself ready for, just get myself right with him. And I've been really working on this. And, you know, someone told me that if I got baptized, all this stuff would end. And I was like, wait, hold on. That's not how it works. If anything, the more you want to live like Christ, the more harder it gets. And I said, here, and this is what I quoted to her, was James. We need to remember that the one who is within you is greater than the one in the world. Pray for that person as well. And pray that God brings people into her heart. On a side note, it's amazing what happens when you actually go with what that thing is happening in your own heart. Suck up my own selfishness of just not wanting to talk to someone. But the point of verse 2 is to create contrast. Verse 1 shows us how Jesus loved his own, and Judas comes along and he shows how much he hated Jesus. In verse 3, Jesus is doing what he is doing, not because he forgot who he is. He is the incarnate God, the Son. He is showing you and I that rank and privilege are not reason for arrogance, but they are reasons for a higher credentials for service. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine. He's a pastor of a, a large church. And we were going out for lunch, and I just asked, oh, what are you up to for the rest of the day? Because it was like 2 o'clock, and I was thinking, well, what am I going to do? I don't know. But he was going back to his church, and he was going to start drywalling and mudding. And I facetiously said, don't you have people for that? Like, come on. Because I'm young and arrogant. And... He came and he said to me, he's like, 
It needs to be done, and I enjoy doing it. And I thought, my, what an example. In Philippians 2, we see Jesus laying aside his glory and taking the form of a servant when he set out to obey unto death. So here Jesus laid aside his ordinary clothing. He wrapped a towel around himself and and took up a wash basin, which was an act meant for the lowest person in the house. So Jesus gets up and he begins to wash the feet. In verses 6 to 10, there's an interesting uh, uh, narrative discussion between him and Peter. If you're like me, I associate myself with Peter because he always says stupid things, and that's me. But you can see Jesus' actions pointing to his humiliation to the cross and blood. But the cross is the only way that Jesus would wash their hearts. See, Peter is adamant about what he says to Jesus. In verse 8, he says, the word literally means never to eternity. Jesus, you're not going to get near these feet. Never going to happen. No matter what, never And what he really is showing, though, what Peter is really showing is a mirror of our own hearts and our innate resistance to God's grace. Peter wasn't being noble. He was being foolish and even self-destructive. And Jesus tells him that the foot washing is the shadow, while the cleansing Jesus will accomplish at the cross is the substance. So unless we see and acknowledge our uncleanliness, unless we see and acknowledge our sin, we won't see our need to be washed by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the outcome is that we have no life in Jesus When it comes to sharing the gospel, this is important because oftentimes when we're sharing the gospel, we start with something like, Jesus loves you. Everyone knows that, I think. One thing that they don't really understand is that they're sinful and they need a savior. The fact that Jesus loves a sinner like me makes it so much more powerful. And someone I see here is how Jesus is always more ready Sorry, something I see here is that Jesus is always more ready to meet us at the throne of grace than we are willing to meet him there. I'm so stubborn. And when someone says, yeah, yeah, pastor, you are too. So we're all in this together. I got this, Jesus. No worries, Jesus. But when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, he has given a picture of what he will do for them, for his people, when he makes them clean through the death of the cross. Jesus, the greatest, will do for the world what it did not deserve. Christmas is about reflecting upon that. That's what the manger is. The manger leads us to the cross. I love this picture we have going on here. So what is Jesus saying? If anyone doesn't receive the cleansing Jesus provides, he has no part with Jesus. And what Jesus does for his disciples, he will clean them completely. Do you see the love that Jesus has for his people, for his own? If you are in Christ, do you see the love that he has for you? Would you like to experience that love? That he's showing to his disciples? Then as he says to Peter, repent and believe. Rest in what he will do on the cross. Believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and he rose again. But not everybody is of his own, as he says at the end of verse 10 there. 
Because in verse 11, he knew. He knew what Judas was about to do. It wasn't some sort of event that wasn't foreseen. Jesus knew that this was going to happen. Jesus moves forward fully aware of what is to come and Judas' role. Judas' actions is his own and free and responsible decision, but it is carried out according to the plan of God. So Judas comes, and he is the one who will betray Jesus. And here's the crazy thing. As Jesus is going around the room and he's washing the feet, he comes to Judas. He probably looks him right in the eyes as he's washing his feet. And some of us have a hard time struggling to serve people we just don't like. And our Lord and Savior washes the feet of the very one who will kiss him and betray him. The example that Jesus leads can only be done because of the gospel I have, that I believe in, that I'm resting in. The more I understand what Christ has done for me, an undeserving sinner, the more willing I will be to bestow that same grace and mercy upon other people. And we think we can't serve people who hurt us. Look, we have all been hurt, but no more than the holy creator of the universe who died for your sins and mine. We are called to, to the same example, not because of something on our own, but because of what we have experienced. We serve and we love based on how we have been served and loved by our Lord. So Jesus shows how he has loved them and more than that, what to do to follow his example. And we should call and we should do the same thing with our own brothers and sisters right here at Knollwood. But by this act, Jesus actually takes time to explain it in verses 12 to 20 as he continues on. He, he finishes washing all the disciples' feet. He gets his clothes back on and he sits back down at the table and he's asked them a simple question. Do you understand what I did? You know, sometimes you have a conversation with someone and you're kind of talking with them, asking them to do something and you're looking at them in the eye and they're kind of like, you're wondering yourself, do they understand what I'm saying? Are we connecting here? And they respond with, yeah, I got it. And I'm like, I don't think you do. I really don't. So Jesus comes and he comes and he, he takes time to explain it. As he says in verses 13 to 15, I have given you an example. And here we serve one another. Is a, how we serve one another is a picture of the atoning death of Jesus. His death is a pattern for our behavior. Only the death of Jesus has atoning, cleansing power. But those who follow Jesus are to give their lives in service to others as he did for us. Only Jesus is the king who washes the feet of his disciples, but his disciples are to serve as he did. If Jesus is not too important to serve them, then they are not too important to serve one another, which is funny, right? Because they had an argument not too long ago about who is the greatest. And Jesus doesn't think it's too much to expect his disciples to imitate him. As he makes it pretty plain that, who, that how he acts is how they are to act. What he does, they are to do. We are called to serve. You know, we just buried a dear sister friend of ours who was a great example of one who served until her last breath. 
I praise God for examples like that. I have a grandfather who is shortly going to be moving into a retirement home. And one of the things that's exciting him about it is starting a Bible study. Why? Because you're never done. You're never done. And as we as a church are called to be disciples, to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to be a disciple is to be a Christ learner. It is to follow the footsteps of our teacher and our Lord. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are to do what he did. Simple. How we serve one another is a gospel reenactment of the grace we have received. So why does Jesus say what he says in verse 16? Because a servant is not greater than the one who sent him, and servants are not, are not greater than their masters, and messengers are not greater than those who send them, and the disciples are not greater than their teacher. Those who both know and do what Jesus has taught will be blessed, as he says in verse 17. If you do them, you know, James 2 f- comes to mind. Intellectual perception is not enough. It's not enough to say, I know this. It's like when you're talking to someone, like your child or something like that, and you're explaining, you're telling them to do something, like, I know, Dad, I know. And, and then my own father's words come into my mind, and I say those, because this is what my dad always told me. If you know, you'll do it. It's not enough to have an intellectual perception. Our words have to be backed up by a commitment of of that life. This doesn't mean that our works are the basis of our acceptance by God. Our works are the evidence of the true faith by which we are justified. Trust and obedience are inseparable. We are declared righteous by faith in Christ alone, but those who have been justified demonstrate their faith by loving Christ and seeking to keep his commandments. So John says that Jesus washed the disciples' feet to show them how to love and to serve one another. You see the bar that's being held here? It's, there's, there's other passages that talk similarly. For husbands, we're called to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Like, that's huge. Some of us men need to do a better job. But Christ comes along and he applies the same logic and he says, how I have served you, now go serve your brothers and sisters. Why? Because of the grace God has poured out on us. Because of what he has done for us. Don't miss the point of this passage, though. Jesus is our substitute before he is our example. And the command to wash one another's feet flows out of the picture of Jesus washing us by his grace. How we serve one another is a gospel reenactment of the grace we have received. So are we free to serve one another as worship? Yeah. Yes but only as a gospel reenactment of the grace that we have received and as an expression that goes with a lifestyle of servant love. See, ritual without humble recognition of and response to the reality of grace is vanity. If I'm just doing something because it's my duty, 
rather than what I have seen the example done for me, then it just becomes vanity. And you see the same thing with the religious leaders. They did all of those rules, all of those things, not because they loved God, but because they loved the rules. So what does it do when we do things out of that way? It only breathes sentimentality and self-righteousness. Look at me. I managed to volunteer at the church for 20 hours this week. If you served at the church for 20 hours this week, you and I have to have a conversation. But we can't disconnect these things. That happens when we disconnect acts of service from the gospel, the reason why we do what we do. So I really hope you see how the washing of the feet is first about Jesus' substitution for us. This is a substitutionary atonement. Christ died in our place. He will shed his blood for us. We are covered by it. The outcome of that, the practical rubber-hitting-the-road application of the gospel in my life and in your life is how we serve one another. John 13, 35 says, for, the, for this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When we are hit by the overwhelming feeling of the gospel and what God has done for us through his son Jesus Christ, it changes you. It cannot not change you. You don't have an option. When the Holy Spirit comes into you, He works in your heart. He makes you more like Christ. And your heart will desire to serve those around you in the very same way that your Lord did for you. And that is what is part of our witness in this world. People should be able to come into this building, into our gathering, and see how we are interacting with each other. And they must be able to say, man, they must love each other. And we must be able to say, we love each other like this because we've first been loved by, our, by God himself. Jesus is our greatest example. You know, Christmas season's here. And, you know, there's commercials on TV about buying Christmas presents. There's lots. They're always trying to get me to buy stuff. You know, Apple keeps sending me emails saying, this would be a great option for your... And I'm, but you know what I do when I read those emails? I'm like, that would be a great option for me. <laughs> Which is what the commercials are. If you noticed, there was one commercial where a woman was sitting on her bed uh, ordering things online for people. But for some reason, it started changing from buying gifts for other people for what can I get out of all this shopping. So she starts shopping for herself. I'm like, wait, isn't this a Christmas commercial? Jesus is the servant, the greatest example of a servant, and he served his father, who did for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's only because of our unity with Christ and how he has loved us that we are set free to honor one another above ourselves and to serve each other in humility. We, how we serve one another is a gospel reenactment of the grace we have received. So what do we do with all of this? Why did Jesus wash his disciples' feet? I reflect upon like what my Sunday school teacher taught me. And I love my Sunday school teachers, but I feel like they kind of missed the point. See, Jesus' acts of service 
as a model of love and service for us. So let's wash the feet of our brothers and sisters. And I'm not saying like literally necessarily, although it could be, for the person who can't reach their feet and they need to have them washed. See, when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, Jesus has given a picture of what he will do for us his people, when he makes them clean through the death of the, on the cross. Jesus, the greatest, will do for the world what it did not deserve. He gave us an example in light of what he has done for us, how we are to serve one another. So what does Jesus' example for those who are in Christ mean? It means do what he did. Jesus' act of service is a model of love and service for us, so let's wash each other's feet. Let's be willing to give up some of our own time to serve someone else. I love hearing about how our church is serving one another. If that be by food or babysitting or helping with a renovation or whatever it may be. I love hearing about it. The other day I heard of a story of someone who for one reason or another, didn't need their weekly grocery money. So instead of cashing in and putting it in the bank, they gave it to somebody else. That's what I'm talking about. And I love hearing how Noah loves one another. Or the people who quietly drive and serve those who are in need, or come to quietly serve at the church by helping around the building. We've had a flood recently, right? And we had to get all those rooms back up and running. And I'm very thankful for those people who gave up of their time. I'm thankful for the families that gave up those people's time. But how has God gifted you? How can you use those gifts and ability to serve the bride of Christ? Are you a prayer warrior, as they say? And call someone up and pray for them right there on the phone. Pray for them. Write an encouraging note. You know that crazy thing called paper and pen? As I preach from my iPad? <laughs> I'll send you an email. <laughs> Let us be a church that looks at Jesus and follows his example. Because how we love one another is in a directly, it is directly tied to our witness. Let the world around us look inside of our church and think, wow, there's something different about them. And may we in turn be bold and share the good news of Jesus Christ. In the church, there is no room for consumerism. Absolutely none. There's no room for words, I've done my duties so somebody else can take care of it. And may I add, this can't be done from afar either. You must be with your people in order to serve this way. This can't be done for people that you only like because Jesus washed Judas' feet. Aren't we always tempted to just hang out with people we like? But we are a family. And some of you are going to have family Christmases coming up. And you're going to do that with people you don't like. But you're going to do it. But for us as a church, we do it because of what Christ has given to us. 
This can't be done with only people that you like, but it also can't only be done when you feel like it either. When we grasp more and more what the grace of God means for us, what Jesus has done for me, it not only pushes me out to declare the hope to this world, but it pushes me to serve my brothers and sisters right here. If the gospel has any effect on us, if we call ourselves followers of Christ at all, we must exemplify the same love that our Lord has particularly shown us, love that he showed to the very ends. How we serve one another is a picture of that atoning death of Jesus. His death is a pattern for our behavior. Our works are evidence of the true faith by which we are justified, as James 2 says. Trust and obedience are inseparable. We are declared righteous by faith in Christ alone, but those who have been justified demonstrate their faith by loving Christ and seeking to keep his commands. How we serve one another is a gospel reenactment of the grace we have been shown. So the main point is this. Jesus' acts of service is a model of love and service for us. So let us wash the feet of our brothers and sisters. Maybe it's a story of, maybe it's replacing a toilet or plunging a toilet. Let's do that. Maybe it's you heard that someone is discouraged and you want to encourage them. Maybe someone needs some food this Christmas. This is why we did the Christmas hampers. Because of what Christ has given to us. So let us continue to worship our awesome God as we reflect upon how he has loved us and how we are called to love one another. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for the example that you have given in your word. Lord, I just pray that as a church that we would love each other as you have loved us. God, I'm overwhelmed by your kindness towards me. And I pray that we all are overwhelmed by your kindness towards us, by the grace that you poured out on us through your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I just pray that we would go out as people who are reminded once again of the good news of Jesus Christ. Not only does that push us out to declare who you are to this broken, broken world, but it also causes us to serve one another in the same way that you have served us. Convict us of our own selfishness, and may we just look to you as we continue to worship you. Amen.